0: through the book of Exodus. If you have begun a Bible reading plan ever, and on January 1, you started in Genesis chapter 1, and you began reading your way through the Bible, I us guarantee you that there was a point that you reached. You started in Genesis chapter 1, and you began in those first few chapters to read about the creation of of the world. And as you continued to read through the book of Genesis, there was story after story of Abraham and Joseph and all sorts of amazing things that took place. And then you came into the book of Exodus, which is where we are now. And in the book of Exodus, you began to read about these people who had been enslaved and God uses this man and brings these plagues. And they fi- God finally delivers the people and he parts the water and the people are saved through the, through the waters of deliverance and they make their way into the wilderness and they're trekking around the wilderness and his God is providing manna and he's providing quail and he's doing all these amazing things and he brings his people to the foot of this amazing mountain. They come to the foot of, the mount, of mount Sinai and hear God with flashes of thunder and lightning and thick clouds and smoke is speaking to God's people and he gives them His law in the book of Genesis and to this point in the book of Exodus is thrilling. This is made for movie. Charlton Heston was made for Genesis and Exodus to this point. But you probably hit a point where suddenly you felt like this really cool, fun, exciting story has been riveting. And then like all of a sudden it's... Not as interesting as it was yesterday. The point that we come to this morning in the book of Exodus is that point where many people go, This was fun, entertaining, interesting, relevant. And now all of a sudden, I'm reading a bunch of laws. I'm reading a bunch of laws, not the Ten Commandment laws. But I'm reading now a bunch of laws, and they don't really seem to have a whole lot of bearing on my life. And in fact, Jeremy, if I was honest with you, some of these passages, I'm a little bit embarrassed that they're in the Bible. In fact, I'm not sure that I want everyone to know that some of these parts of the Bible are in the Bible. Well, this morning, I want us to look at... Four chapters of Scripture. We're not going to have time to look at every single verse under a microscope, but I want us to get a big-picture overview of these chapters this morning. And I want you to know that someone snapped a picture of me while I was preparing the sermon this week. Um, and This is what I felt like. This, I feel like I'm trying to cram way more into a sermon. That's actually not me. You can tell. Uh, you, the reason you can tell is because that's not my car. Um, so, so I feel like I'm trying to cram way more into this sermon than can possibly ever be crammed into it. And my point this morning actually isn't for us to evaluate every single one of these laws. I want us to see in passages of Scripture that you might be tempted to think, I'm not sure I agree with those, I'm not sure if I like those, and I'm not sure I want anyone outside of Christianity to even know these verses are here. I actually want you to see God's wisdom and love in all of the laws he gives. Our main point this morning is this. God's law proves God's love. In your Bibles, the end of chapter 20, starting in verse 22, and like I said, we're not going to read every single verse, but, but hang with me as we give a quick flyover these chapters. In verse 22, after the people here now have been at the foot of Mount Sinai and they've trembled and they've said, don't speak to us, God. We just Moses, you speak to us for God and we're going to stand far off. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with you, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you will make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it and already Many in this room are starting to tune out, and it's not not because you don't love God, not because you don't love His Word. It's just like, man, like what he's talking about—whether I can use a chisel on a stone to make an altar or not. And maybe you, you know, the word "naked" always pops out to our ears, right? So, in verse twenty-six, what's all of a sudden? I'm paying attention again. What's going on here? And now, in verse twenty-one, we start some verses that really get our attention. These are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And then the seventh, he shall go out for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, The wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. And we continue on into verse seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. She shall not go out as the men slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. And we already in our hearts and our minds are starting to ask questions like, wait a second, the Bible has laws about slavery, but why isn't it just outright condemning slavery? We know that slavery is wrong. Why isn't God condemning slavery? Verse 15, whoever strikes his father, or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so two men are fighting and, and they, one of them inadvertently hits a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hid her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. And on and on we continue to read, we start in verse chapter 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And we continue to read law after law and rule after rule that seem to us to be so archaic and so foreign or some of them even unfair, un- inappropriate. We, we read these many of these laws and think they, they don't make sense to us. And then we come, many of our Bibles have a heading over verse 16 of chapter 22, laws about social justice. And we think, well, we hear a lot about social justice today. Let's read what the Bible has to say about it. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And we think, I'm not sure that that's right or fair or appropriate. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Wait, is that... Is that the the whole burn the witch idea? Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Okay, that that kind of makes sense to us. And then in verse 25, we have ideas about lending money. Chapter 23 continues these laws and rules about social justice. In in the middle of chapter 23, verse 10, now we get into these rules and laws about, about holidays and Sabbath days and festivals and Every six days you're to do this, and every seven years you're to do this, and there are different kinds of feast of ingatherings and feast of firstfruits and different. And then in chapter twenty-three, verse twenty, there's the promise that you'll make your way into the land of Canaan someday. And then you get into chapter twenty-four, and in chapter twenty-four, verse eight, Moses throws blood on people. It says it right there, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And we read through a bunch of verses in these chapters, and we have to kind of ask ourselves, what's the deal with these laws? Like, What's going on in these chapters of the Bible? Thank goodness they're in the Old Testament. That's why I don't read the Old Testament. I just stick to the New Testament. New is better, old is bad, right? So let's just stick with the New Testament. No, no, no. no. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want us to see this morning. I actually want you to see the wisdom and the trustworthiness, the goodness and the love of God in all of God's commands and in all of God's laws, even in passages of Scripture where you and I would often, as we're doing our Bible reading, come to these chapters and while you might read through them and there may be a question pop up into your head, you think, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, these laws about slavery are weird and sure seems like God should have said something a little stronger against slavery than these verses. But, you know, I, I'm just going to keep reading. I'm going to get to the part that's interesting to me. Oh, friends, these, these are interesting passages of Scripture. So I think there's two big questions that we need to answer together this morning. Number one is just simply, what's up with these laws? And then number two, which of these laws do I need to keep today? Which of these laws do I need to keep today? Look at the, in chapter 23. The end of verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I don't know what you were planning for lunch today, but you may have to change your menu options based on Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. Let's, let's, go, through, let's go through big picture what God's doing in these, in these chapters here together this morning. We're actually going to do something exactly like what we did when we went through the Ten Commandments. First of all, we're going to look at these laws and their relationship to Israel. And then we're going to look at these laws in relationship to Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at these laws in relationship to you and I. So number one, the law and Israel. So can you imagine the children of Israel, they've just been given the Ten Commandments and they think, wow, that was really terrifying, but also impressive, right? Like it's pretty um, terrifying, the shaking mountain and the fire and the smoke and all that sort of thing. And God kind of scares us so we want Moses to be our intercessor but that is pretty awesome that our God is like that and he's given us these 10 commands and that's great these 10 commands are pretty straightforward and pretty clear but but almost immediately they would begin to have questions about well God said not to murder but like the other day, a friend of mine was chopping wood and his axe head flew off as he was swinging it and it hit the guy that was working with him and it killed him. Is, is he guilty of murder? And if so, is he guilty of the punishment for murder that the Bible... Like, what am I supposed to do? What if we accidentally kill someone? What if two guys are fighting and, and they do intend harm, but one of them kills the other? And he didn't really mean to kill the guy. Now what? Or we know that the Bible says not to steal. But I loaned my donkey to my neighbor when I went on vacation. And when I came back, the donkey wasn't there and my neighbor doesn't know where it is. But my neighbor has more money than he had when I left on vacation. Right? Like, what, do, what am I supposed to do? And so what God is doing is he's unpacking the Ten Commandments, these these laws that we're reading here in these chapters and really through the rest of the Pentateuch, they're not just random, arbitrary. God's like, you know, I gave you the Ten Commandments, but um, there's another one that I want you to remember. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, right? Don't take a little baby goat and then cook it in the milk of its mother. Um, I forgot to tell you that one. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, no mixed fabrics, right? No poly cotton blends for you, Israel, Right, I forgot to tell you that one as well. And uh, oh yeah, leprosy, I've got some rules. About, right, God's not just, sudden. it's not like he forgot, like you and I often do where, oh yeah, one more thing, God's not doing, oh yeah, 500 more things. It's not what God's doing when he's giving these additional laws. Lo- in fact, what he's doing in his kindness, just like in his kindness and his wisdom in giving the 10 commands, the 10 words, the 10, inst- the 10 instructions to the people of God, God is now, fleshing those out explaining those so that the people of Israel can be deeply and profoundly blessed and understand how to use these 10 good rules and instructions that God has given them so these chapters are fleshing out the 10 commands but some of these laws really are they're confusing to us we would call them politically incorrect we would call them distasteful we think of them sometimes as embarrassing but is is that really how we should think about these commands? Well, I know that you know God well enough to know that, okay, there's got to be good explanation for these things. In fact, when you've read the Bible in the past, and you came to passages like this, let's say these verses about slavery, and you thought, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that God has a good explanation for it. I might not know what it is yet, and I'm not necessarily going to go ask anybody else about it yet, but I'm sure God has good reasons for what he's done. Let me just say this to you. Let me commend you for that instinct and that response. You're right. You're right. God does have good reasons for what he has done. God does have good explanations for what he... In fact, that's, a, that's what he's doing. He's actually doing good and doing good justice and being fair and kind and gracious in these laws and these commands. So let's just jump into what for us might be one of the hardest ones for us to understand, right? Right there in chapter 1, he starts with rules about slavery. And there's a bunch of them throughout these next three chapters, chapters 21, 22, and 23. They have different sections and different passages that deal with, with what we call and what our Bibles actually name as slavery. Chapter 21, verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave. And throughout later in verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. And when you and I read those passages, it is impossible for you and I to read them without our understanding of slavery. It's impossible for us to understand these passages without what we already know about slavery. And what we already know about slavery is actually accurate and true and right. The fact that in this room to even talk about slavery, we all kind of think, man, what, what an embarrassment to humanity. What a, what a horrible thing that we have endured. That's actually the right response to have. Because slavery, as we know it, as we understand it as part of American history, is a horrible thing. And God does condemn, in no uncertain terms, that slavery. Look in chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You want to talk about how seriously God thinks of slavery as you and I know it and you and I understand it? The forced uh, um, enslavement, uh, trapping, stealing, taking someone against their will, will, out of their life, out of their home, out of their environment, out of their culture, and, and uh, through literally shackles and, and imprisonment, bringing them to another place and selling them to another person. If I steal someone and sell them to Levi, God says, I and Levi both die. Die. It's not you got to make restitution. It's not let the person go and give them a little bit of money. It's, it's we die for doing this. So let's be very clear that God's opinion, God's condemnation of what you and I understand as slavery is strong and is powerful. We also need to understand that what was going on here is significantly different than what you and I think of as slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of this horrible thing, and it is forbidden right here in Exodus 21, verse 16. But this kind of slavery, this kind of life, was more like what we would consider indentured servitude. You might think, I don't know what those words are. This was not involuntarily stealing someone to be used as slaves against their will based on their ethnicity, right? Right? Us people of this color take those people of that nationality and that color, and we trap them and sell them to the other people that are like my color. That's not what this is. Hebrew people are slaves to Hebrew people. So first of all, it's it's not like the ethnicity-based slavery that we're familiar with. Hebrew people with Hebrew slaves. And this is not involuntary. This is actually voluntary. Now, imagine a world where there weren't corporations and businesses and Hillmar and, and you know, dairies and farms where people would hire a bunch of people in Walmart to hire a bunch of people. Here's a world in which there are people who owned land and they own a little bit of land or they own a medium amount of land or they own a lot of land or they own no land. And then then some of those people are also skilled artisans and they can barter their skills and services for a little bit of money or a little bit of food or a little bit more land. But if you had no land and you weren't a skilled artisan, you had no land and no money and no prospects, you could voluntarily contract with someone wealthy who would take care of you and your family in exchange for your work. In fact, this, this idea of being contractually bound to someone else where they have exclusive rights to you is not as foreign a concept to us as we might think it is. There's a couple sporting events happening today. Some of you may be aware of that. And on all four of the teams involved in those sporting events are athletes. And... My guess is that every single, most if not every single one of those athletes have signed, what, a contract, and that contract that they signed says they're going to get 900 bajillion dollars for two years. But the only person that they can use their skills and services for are that team. So I signed a contract with the. Kansas City Dodgers or the Cincinnati Brewers or, you know, there's all sorts of different guys out there, right? I signed a contract and I can't go play for a different team. I'm actually not free to do so. So-and-so signed a five-year contract with the Dallas Cowboys and now he's no longer a free agent. He could get traded, but he's not free to play for whomever he wants. He must play only for the Cowboys. His abilities are owned by the cowboys. This is similar to what's happening here. There was a world in which it was advantageous for me to be a slave for a wealthy landowner. I could take care of myself and my family, my wife and children would all, and we would go and we would be taken care of and we would provide services for them. And this was a good, and this was something that was voluntary for me. And God is giving a bunch of laws to slave owners Because God also knew this. God also knew that slave owners have hearts just like mine and yours. And just like you and I, they were tempted to take advantage of people. Even God's people were tempted to take advantage of other people. And these people had hearts just like mine and yours. And when their slave didn't do just exactly what they wanted to do, they would be tempted to do just like you and I do and raise our fist against someone else. And so God provides because he knows the sinful heart of man. He provides careful checks and balances and laws and rules and regulations because he loves his people and because the image of God is represented in every human being. And God provides ways to protect all of everyone, even those who have sold themselves into slavery. God knew that it was the heart of man to abuse people and these laws protect those that were working as servants to others. And in fact, This is so unlike slavery, and God is so mindful and thoughtful of those who find themselves in this economic contract and employment. Every seven years, everybody gets to go free. Let's say that I've employed 50 people in this way. They've come to me and said, we'll sell ourselves to you if you'll take care of us, and and so I've got 50 people that work for me this way. And after seven years, they get to go completely free. I I don't get to, I I can't say, no, you have to. No, they get to go free. And if they they want to stay because of the arrangement they've been so encouraged and so blessed by and they want to stay with me, they can choose to do so permanently. This kind of slavery, brothers and sisters, is nothing like what we think of. And the rules, these laws that God is, is giving are laws that are intended to be for the blessing of people, right? So, verse 26 of chapter 21, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. And you might read that and think, is God saying it's okay okay for people to punch their slaves, to to hit their employees? God's saying the opposite. It's so not okay that if he does that, the guy gets to go free right there. Right then and there. He, he, his freedom is provided for him right there. Each, each of these laws, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, these sorts of things, um, are, are when we understand what God is doing, it shows that God is kind and God is gracious and God is caring. He loves his people. These laws sometimes are misrepresented. And we, you've heard the quotation, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth will make the whole world blind. Actually, that's the opposite of what is true. Right? the 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 reality. Some have viewed this as a as a barbaric thing, but we see that God is anticipating. He knows that it's going to be the temptation of man to to strike each other and to harm each other. And God is saying, "No, no." And in fact, if you if you do that, there are going to be punishments. There's going to be there's going to be uh, retribution. I mean, imagine if I am a biblically defined, a biblically oriented slave owner. I have these people, and it's it's almost impossible for us to use the word slave without all that we think of as slavery. I'm gonna use the word servant to help us try to make a distinction in our mind, okay? So let's say that I have these servants working for me, and I begin to get angry, and I think I'm gonna let this guy have it. And then I remember if I hit him, and even by accident knock his tooth out, my, my tooth's coming out too. I, I like my teeth. I want to hang on to them. I'm not going to hit the guy. If I hit this guy and accidentally mess his eye up, my eye is coming out as well. And so not a, it's not that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth makes the whole world blind. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth keeps people from hitting each other. God in his wisdom is doing good things because he loves his people. These laws... These, these in these chapters and throughout the Old Testament can be categorized under, under four main headings, and I think I have these headings on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the screen here for you. You have those, Jay? There we go. OK. Four main headings that we see here in the Old Testament that really all of these laws fall under. They're, they're, they're holiness laws, Holiness laws where God sets his people apart and sets them apart. To be different from the the nations around them, All right. So the boiling a, a, a kid in its mother's milk. Well, there were ancient pagan fertility rites that the other nations were involved in, and this was one of them. And God says, "Look, don't don't uh, don't practice the um the the tricks and the um oh what's uh rituals? I can't think of the word that I'm I'm trying to um, think of." I don't have it in my notes either. But don't, don't practice these things like the pagans do. I'm setting you apart to be holy and to be sanctified and to be different from others. The the different fabrics, the mixture of different fabrics, these and other, other laws that we're going to come across in the Old Testament are laws that God is using specifically to make his people holy and to set them apart. Another category is, is sacrificial laws, right? And then you look in chapter twenty. Uh, Verses 22 and 26, and, and God is telling you, Here's, there's a very specific way that I want you to build an altar. And it's an altar that's built differently than the altars of the pagan gods. And as you read through, there's, different, there's a lot of different um, regulations and laws about how they're going to prepare sacrifices and how they're going to kill animals. And God, God cares about sacrifice. God cares about justice. And in these chapters, the majority of the laws are about justice. If your neighbor does this, if your father does this, if your servant does this, here's how you live in a way that's full of justice and kindness and equity with each other. And then lastly, the fourth section is that that God gives them laws about holy days. We look in in chapter 23, uh, verses 10 through 19. And for six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield on the seventh you shall let it lie fallow. Verse 12, six days you shall work. On the seventh day you shall rest. Verse 15, you shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. And throughout the Old Testament, and, and especially here in this section, we see that God is—he cares about these holy days for his people. So God cares about their holiness. He wants them to sacrifice. He cares about justice. And he cares about holy days. And these are all really good instructions. See, we have, we have this really foolish idea about rules and law and commands and instructions. We think they're bad. Most of us think that rules and laws and regulations are bad and they make life hard for us. But let me prove to you real quickly how wonderful rules and regulations are. And I'm going to use a stupid little illustration to, to do it. Okay? We're going to play a game. Okay, um, and, uh, But here's the beauty of it. There are... There are no rules or regulations. There are none whatsoever. You go first. We're playing. You go. Go. You go first. Right? So your response is totally normal. You're like, we can't do any. There, there's no rules or regulations. You, you can't actually play a game without rules and regulations. Brothers and sisters, imagine if there were no rules or rule of law or laws in the world that we live in. And I mean like, I, I mean, like um, even like, just law enforcement laws, like the, the laws of the state, the laws of the city, the laws of the county, that sort of thing. I mean, you might think, man, that would be awesome. I could drive as fast as I want, anywhere I want. The problem is, everyone else is driving as fast as they want, everywhere they want. And you might be like, I'm a right lane person and they're a left lane person, right? Like there's, there's no laws. There's, there's no laws. There's no rules whatsoever. So do you see that God in his kindness and in his wisdom is not giving these arbitrary, unrelated, he's making up stuff to make life hard for Israel. In his wisdom and in his goodness, he is bringing structure to their lives that allows for human flourishing. I, I, there's not going to be a lot of application this morning. I want you to see God's goodness and wisdom in giving us law. I want you to see His goodness and wisdom. And giving us law, so th- if we're playing a game with each other and there are no rules whatsoever, well, that's no fun, but if I then take a chess board and put a, je- a chess board in between Dustin and I, and he's got the, the players and I've got the players, and we both know the rules of chess, well now, now we can have fun. Now we can get something done. Now we, now we know how we're going to proceed and how we're going to progress. Um, no law whatsoever is, is only, only comes from those who don't love properly. The parents who say, I'm going to raise my kids with no rules. First of all, that only lasts, I mean, well, for, I don't know anybody who does that, but it would only last like minutes, right? Because you realize, no, 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 like in order for this child not to self-destruct and in order for me to have some semblance of like, I actually like this person, like I'm going to have to bring rules and law and structure into their lives. God brings all of these wonderful, good laws into his people, Israel. And you know what they do? They promise to keep them. They break their promise. In fact, as you read through the first five books of the Bible, Moses does something that's really uh, brilliant in his, in his literary Sometimes it's so fun to, this is what I'm saying, like, there's, there's so much that we could unpack from every line of this, but I really did, I, want us to get it, I wanted us to get a big picture overview of it this morning. Um, what Moses is doing through the five books of the Pentateuch is he's showing the rules and regulations of God, chapters 21 through 24, and then he tells a story about how Israel breaks them. And then he gives more rules and regulations and laws, and then he gives stories of how Israel breaks them. And then he gives more rules and regulations about, from God, and then he shows how Israel breaks them. I mean, just, I mean, if if you're if you're still awake, it's a little warm in here, um, and I'm awake, but I'm teaching um, uh, in Exodus chapter 32, right? So here in chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, right? We get a bunch of we get a bunch of law, and then. Um, And then in the following chapters, we're going to see a bunch of uh, rules about how the, the priest's garment and the tabernacle and all the altars and that sort of thing, right? So we get all these instructions from God. We get all these wonderful instructions from God. And as soon as we're done getting all the wonderful instructions of God, what's the first story we see? Have no other gods before me and don't make any graven images. First two rules, what do they do? I mean, Moses is literally coming down, right? Charlton Heston, coming down the mountain and the number one and number two don't do, they're doing. The people of Israel break God's laws, and we break God's goods, good laws. The law is good, but Israel needs something even better than law. They need a savior, which brings us, by the way, that was the, that was the longest point this morning. Uh, points two and point three won't be, won't be nearly that long. Point number two, Let's look at the law and Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. He keeps all the commandments. He checks all the boxes. All four categories Jesus fulfills. Remember, Jake, can you flip back to the last slide? Holiness, justice, sacrifice, and yeah, holiness, sacrifice, justice, and holy days. Jesus comes and he checks the boxes on all of those. He is the perfect holy human being. He is the... Appropriate sacrifice. He lives a life of justice toward others. All the holy days point to who He is. Jesus checks all the boxes. Thanks, bud. He earns perfect righteousness for you. Jesus, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. Every Sunday that we gather in this church, you should never leave thinking you're awesome. You're the man. You're the reason God saved you. You're the hero of Heart. No, no, no. We have one hero. It's never you. It's never me. See, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was given a command. He was given a command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was expected to trust God and obey God. But he failed. And here, God's people are given commands from God, and they were expected to trust God and to obey God. But they failed, and you and I know the commands and the laws of God, and we are expected to trust God and obey God, and we fail. But Jesus comes, and for 33 years, unlike Adam and unlike Israel and unlike you and unlike me, Jesus trusts God and obeys God. He's the hero. Israel failed, and it took the blood of an atoning sacrifice to make them right with God. That's why, look in chapter 24. We'll read verses six through eight. These are the most beautiful passages, even though they strike us really oddly. Chapter 24, verse six, and Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar, right? So Moses is taking the blood of the sacrifice, and he's sprinkling it on an altar to make a sacrifice acceptable to God. And then verse eight, jump down to verse eight. Well, I'll read verse 7 on the way. Then he took the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant, by the way, are all of the chapters that we've just looked at. The book of the covenant are the, the, uh, the covenant, um, that the commands, the laws that God is establishing between he and his people. This book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these, um, in, 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 with all of these words. Uh, Moses is giving us this incredible picture that there will someday be one who comes and his blood will cover his people and it will perfectly and finally atone in a way that this sacrifice couldn't. will atone perfectly for the sins of all of God's people. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And Jesus is who makes us safe to approach. Look, in verse uh, 9, after the people have been sprinkled with the blood, what are they able to do? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up. Where did they go? Well, they went up on Mount Sinai. Where were they just not able to go? They weren't able to go up into God's presence on Mount Sinai. But when they have blood sprinkled on them, they are safely able to go up into the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Don't you understand, brothers and sisters, that when you're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, that's what makes you safe to go up into the presence of God. So we see the law and Israel. We see the law and Jesus. And Jesus is now what makes it safe for us as we consider the law and you. So the question we asked earlier, and I end with this, which laws do we keep? All of them? Anybody bring a goat to a synagogue yesterday? No? Don't keep all of them. Did anybody worry about whether or not their clothes had mixed fabrics this morning? No, probably not. I'm I'm sure I'm in violation of that myself. So which, which ones do we keep? Well, Dr. Tom Schreiner helps us understand this. He reminds us that we need to read the Bible According to its storylines, what we're doing with the kids in the with, the with the Jesus Storybook Bible, God has established a covenant with Israel that distinguishes them from all the other nations, right? They've already been saved from, from Egypt. God has established a covenant with them, and these laws are part of that covenant. But even in the Old Testament, there were prophecies that God was going to establish a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 23 talk about how God is going to To establish a new covenant with his people, and he'll write his laws on their hearts. And when Jesus came, he establishes, he begins this new covenant. The New Testament uses language like in Romans chapter 7, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, referring to Exodus chapters 21 through 24. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, yes, I will. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, referring to the Old Testament law, the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's reminding them of the tablets of stone that Moses carried, and he's saying this new covenant and the work that the Spirit does is even more glorious. Verse 9, For there was, more, for there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it for if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory so so we're not under the old covenant and its commands we're not under the old covenant anymore so the real question is this why do we keep the laws that we do keep why do we keep the laws that we do keep well many of them are repeated in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, as part of the New Covenant. The New Testament is not without commands and laws and indicatives. Though we aren't under the Old Covenant anymore. We are under a New Covenant. We are under the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 20, Galatians 5, verse 14, talk about the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Do you remember the one word that the whole law is fulfilled in? Yes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus clearly taught it himself in Matthew chapter 22. The law of love brings all sorts of wonderful rules and regulations into our lives. Law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. Law is a good thing. It's a good thing. You can't play the game without rules and regulations. You can't live life without rules and regulations. And don't you see that this is exactly what all the Old Testament laws were about? You, It would be um, impossible to find a command in the Old Testament that doesn't fall neatly and obviously under love God or love your neighbor. They all fall beautifully and perfectly. It's almost like God planned. Well, yeah, yeah. He did. He planned it. He knew exactly what he was doing. If you love, you honor your father and mother. If you love, you don't murder. Many of the commands do carry over, not because they, not because they were part of the Old Covenant, but because the New Testament indicates that they're part of the law of Christ. So we're not just being arbitrary. We're reading the whole Bible in light of Christ, fundamentally, we're called to one rule. There's one law now that governs the life of the Christian. There's one. I re- I I don't like lists. When someone when someone says, "Here's 20 principles to have a wonderful marriage," I'm like, "Good heavens, man!" For, apparently, I'm not going to have one because 20. I'm going to remember all of those, right? And you get to like five, and I feel a little bit better. But if you tell me, here's the list, and there's one thing on it. Now, if it's something that Angie asked me to pick up from the grocery store, it's still a good chance I'm not going to remember. But God gives us one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And by the way, there's There's a second one that's just like it. That's just part of it. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are going to love your neighbor as yourself. They really aren't two different commands. They're all flowing out of this one command, love, love. Isn't it remarkable that the New Testament actually isn't full of detailed rules and regulations? Yeah, it has plenty of indicative statements and Many of things that we're encouraged to do and commanded to do even, but they're all derivative of one, love, love God, love others. So when we read the Old Testament law, we remember that they were given to Israel in their ancient cultural setting. You, you couldn't follow many of them even if you tried, but you can see God's wisdom in giving the law and trust God's spirit to lead you now in following the law of Christ, which is to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to then love your neighbor, love those around you as you love yourself. I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I'll invite the music team up here. We're gonna close with a final song. I forget the name of it, but I know it has to do with loving God or God's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us, brothers and sisters, as we close our morning worship service and prayer, I want you, as we sing how deep the Father's love for us, I want you to remember that even in the laws and commands that he gives, we see and feel and experience his love for us. And then, of course, in light of that, let's go and love him and love others that way. The wisdom and love of God in these commands. These are not politically incorrect. They're not embarrassing. And they do all have a wonderful explanation. Simply put, it's that God loves his people. If you're here this morning and you don't know the love of God in Christ as your Savior, don't leave today. You can talk with me. You can talk with one of our other pastors. We would love to have that conversation with you. But for many in here this morning, let's just be reminded of God's love for us as seen. We see it in lots of ways. We see the love of God for us, even in his law for us. Father, use this sermon to help us love you more and to obey you better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and we'll sing, and then Pastor Matt will come and close our service.